So I think we've already got this job polarity, which has been happening for the last 20 years. And I think with the growth of AI, machine learning, the Internet of Things, 3D printing, this is going to accelerate hugely in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I think that throws up huge challenges for society, but it, it means it's going to be even more difficult for businesses that have already got labor and skill and talent shortages. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky. And today we have a special guest joining us from the UK, and it's Kevin Green. Hi, Kevin. Hello there. How are you? So just as a way of introduction, I stalked uh, Kevin on Twitter for a number of years, even though we have a joint connection because Kevin used to be the vice president of the World Employment Confederation, which is a network of the staffing and recruitment industry, and it's based in Brussels. Um, Listeners may be familiar with one other podcast that we recorded previously with Denis Penel, who is the managing director of this uh, confederation. So it's through Denis and, and the tweets of the World Employment Confederation that I got to follow uh, Kevin on Twitter and have been enjoying his tweets ever since. And it was following his last um, TEDx talk that I reached out and, and went all in and invited you, Kevin, to join the podcast for this episode. So just a very short introduction. Kevin is a strategic advisor, non-executive director. He's also the CEO and founder of What's Next, a consultancy that he will tell us more about. Um, He has an impressive 37 years experience in the people management and HR domain. And for example, I, I was very pleasantly surprised or, or it was interesting to discover that you, you also used to be HR director at Royal Mail. And so you you have seen people, the people business from both sides of the table, from inside organizations and also outside from different networks, advocacy organizations, as well as in a consulting role. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to our conversation now uh, around these topics and just handing it over to you, Kevin, if you would like to tell listeners a little bit more about yourself, about your passion, what drives you, that would be great. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of my career, I was an HR professional who who then ended up uh, running a consultancy organization in the middle of my career. I uh, got frustrated with the inability of management teams to implement some of the recommendations that we were often recommending. So went in-house and became the HR director at Royal Mail for five years. Loved it, huge transformation. The business was losing a million and a half pounds a day. Um, And within a four-year period, we turned that round, so it made 500 million pound profit. So it was a two billion pound turnaround within four years. We had to um, restructure the whole business, close factories, change terms and conditions. And this was all about preparing for a world where this public sector monopoly was going to go, you know, going to be competing against 
private sector organization. So I did that for five years. And then I didn't quite know what was going to be next. And I was approached to become the chief executive of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, which was the professional body for the recruitment industry in the UK. And I did that for 10 years up until March of this year. Uh, and since then, uh, I decided that I'd create my own job towards the end of my career so I could do exactly what I liked. Um, and I'm doing three or four non-executive roles, a strategic advisor to a couple of other organisations. Uh, they're all human capital businesses. They're consultancy organisations or professional services or recruitment companies. So I suppose my passion throughout my whole of my work and life has been about helping organisations to... I don't know, galvanise, inspire, motivate um, their people and get the best from their people and so compete effectively uh, as an organisation. And I'm also in the process of writing my first book, which will be called Competitive People Strategy, which I'm, uh, I've only just started and I've got to complete by the end of the year. So that's a new phenomenon for me. And this portfolio life has been quite exciting and interesting in the last few months. So I'm sure that uh, tells you enough about my passion. I mean, there are other things I'm passionate about, obviously family, theatre, novels and football. I'm a great Arsenal fan, so I'm a season ticket holder and me and my son go and see the mighty Arsenal. That's great. So half of the listeners got even more excited and half switched off. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the way with football. No, thank you so much for this introduction and I think it's 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 really interesting to hear also because um you know just by interviewing so many people for the podcast and in the research projects we do i see that a lot of people really hesitate when they uh before they, they really would like to become freelance or embrace this portfolio career but it seems a very scary step and then when they do they they really thrive but there's also good to know that there's always a way back in so if you just you know, had fed up with it, you can always go back in. And I think that's something about this really fluid labor market that it's no longer just a job for life or being employee for life, but you can be an employee, you can be freelance, you can go back in employee. So it's great to hear from someone with you, like you from so much experience, you know, perspective on this, that you took a lot of risks and, and, and it was, it was great. I also think when I put my HR hat on, when I was looking for, you know, talent, I was looking for leaders to come into our organisation. People that have had a, uh, have done different things in their career, I think, are uh, in short supply. I think you're looking for people that uh, have confidence in themselves and their skills and abilities, you know, that can sell ideas and concepts. Um, so people that have been in consultancy, run their own business for a period, I think are becoming more valuable to organisations because I think some of the skills and the attitudes are uh, so important for organisations nowadays. So I see it as a real positive rather than something to be frowned upon and only to, or only to do at the end of your career. So I think sort of opting out and being a freelancer for a few years develops a whole host of skills that are difficult to... Uh, gather within an organization absolutely do you think i mean we're going to now be speaking about labor market trends i'm also very interested and i guess so are you about how organizations adapt to these trends but do you think that 
there's going to become a time when organizations are becoming more elastic because I feel that now people who have a real thirst and, and you know, passion for things, they feel that their jobs or employment, the full-time employment is too confiding for them. So that's why they go on and become part of this uh, freelance community to plug in their specific skills where it's needed and, and go from project to project. But do you think employers will be able to somehow stretch and, and embrace this kind of skills economy? Yeah, I think they already are. I mean, if you look at most organizations, certainly most large organizations, if you look at how they get work done. So if you forget talking to them about jobs, just say, tell us how you deliver things. They will often talk about interim directors, they'll talk about contractors, they'll talk about subcontracting, uh, they'll talk about fixed-term contracts, part-time workers, you know, temporary staff. You know, I think organisations are becoming much more agile and much more responsive to customers and markets. And to do that, they've got to be able to move at pace and they're going to need to get skills and capability and to do that i think they need to embrace individuals and micro businesses and small businesses where they already have the capability and what you don't want to do is you want to buy them for a period of time where they can add lots of value and and then they can move on to something else when you know they've met your requirements so i think you're right organizations are becoming much more dynamic much more agile and i think it's about language i think when you talk about jobs and labor markets it sounds quite static, but when you talk about, I don't know, supply chains or agility, then you, I think you think quite differently. And I think organisations are beginning to change their language because I think as they get into these periods of labour skill and talent shortages, they know that they've got to find the people they need in a different way. It can't all just be about employing people uh, uh, permanently. And... What do you think are some of them? You mentioned skills and talent shortages. What do you see are some of these pressing trends that are impacting organizations and, and human capital? And do you think that there are maybe some trends that that are creeping up and are underestimated that leaders are not reckoning with, something that really frustrates you? <laughs> Yeah, there is. There's one that leaps up, and that's job polarity. I mean, one of the things that you can see, and the OECD did a fantastic study about two years ago where they showed the labor market in every single developed economy uh, around the world. And what they did is they showed the growth of both high-paid, high-skilled jobs and low-paid, low-skilled jobs. And the jobs that were being destroyed in every single labor market were the jobs in the middle of the labor market. So these are the jobs that were being hollowed out or eliminated. And I think one of the frustrations I have is that that's not recognized by organizations. Because if you think about how people develop, quite often within organizations is people do, you know, they take on a, an office job or a basic job and then progress. Uh, and I think what we're now doing is we're eliminating lots of those jobs, those office jobs, people that process things in insurance companies or uh, bank back offices. I think call centers will be a thing of the past quite quickly. So I think we've already got this job polarity, which has been happening for the last 20 years. And I think with the growth of AI, 
machine learning, the Internet of Things, 3D printing. This is going to accelerate hugely in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I think that throws up huge challenges for society, but it, it means it's going to be even more difficult for businesses that have already got labour and skill and talent shortages to find the high-skilled, high-paid people that they need, but also to develop their own because the jobs that traditionally existed in the middle of organisations have been eliminated or destroyed. That's very, very true. And also, I think we're not reckoning with the wider societal economic consequences that we're really opening further this inequality scissors of people who have great bargaining power for themselves because of their skills and those that are almost the disposable zero-hour mini-jobs type of of people who are, are really losing out their buying power and, and their pensions as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I do see there being, I mean, I think we have growing inequality now. The data is very supportive of that. But I think what I've just been talking about, that trend for job polarity, I suspect we will end up with greater inequality. Uh, and that inequality will, you know, and also if you think about longevity, people are living for that much longer. Our children will be living um, quite often, 90% of them till they're 100. And, and if you think about people that are gig workers, an Uber driver, Deliveroo, you know, and you think about doing that type of job where you're often having to do multiple tasks uh, to make ends meet uh, and to provide for your family, but you're going to be doing that for 50 or 60 years, I think that's an untenable position. And I think the level of dissatisfaction in our societies will grow and what we will then get, of course, is people that, you know, lean towards they're looking for answers and they're likely to look for populists, both from the left and the right, uh, to come up with answers for people that are really dissatisfied with having to work very, very hard for long periods of time for, for not a huge wage, while others are reaping the benefits of the shortages in the talent and skills market. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, and again, the politicians aren't recognising this and aren't starting to deal with it. Mm. And it's funny that you brought up the OECD because when you started, you know, when we started our conversation, it immediately made me think of the OECD has this forum every year. And two years ago, there was a panel discussion between a prominent uh, trade union uh, leader and the vice president of Uber. And it was just a lot of bickering without even any, neither of them taking an inch towards the other to try to find some common ground. And it's actually just today and tomorrow is the OECD forum this year. And I saw a very, very similar tweet about someone, you know, from the labor union movement at, you know, going after somebody of a platform. I think it was Airbnb. The problem is, is that we're stuck in these silos and don't seem to be able to come out of them to find some more hybrid solutions, perhaps, for for these people. Exactly just what you said. I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think um, governments have got to be innovative and creative and think, for, think up different solutions for the problems of today and tomorrow. I think what we have is we have lots of vested interests to perceive the world through how it used to be rather than how it is and how it's going to be. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, lifelong learning and 
looking at our education systems. Our education systems need to be designed for the world that we're going to be living in and preparing our young people for you know, a very dynamic labour market. And, and also we need to be able to give people access to education and training throughout their life because the labour market's going to move at such speed and with such pace that we need to enable our people to keep pace with that and to make sure that they're employable. So I think there's absolutely a responsibility on government, but business needs to do different things as well. I mean, it needs to take some responsibility for creating its workforce of tomorrow. So I do think there is a a need for a different language, a different conversation where we are trying to come up with new solutions. And I think the trade unions are, you know, I I think they, they, they have a great role to play if they would just end up not taking the same positions and saying we want to create a new solution. And that may be that people, you know, I was on a radio debate recently in the UK. and There was a huge debate about Uber and Deliveroo. And many of the workers that phoned up because it was a phone in were saying why they love working like that. It gives them choice. It enables them to fit childcare and caring for adult responsibilities, for studying, for PhDs and all these different things that we want to do with our lives and fitting work around them. And so they were very passionate about choice and the flexibility that it gave. But actually, do we need to give people the ability to access training while they're doing that and to create some way in which they can take leave and some holiday pay and you know support pensions absolutely so we want to keep the flexibility we want to come up with that dynamic you know we can't stifle technical technical innovation within our labor markets we need that because who you know as a as a consumer i like uber as a you know to be able to get a taxi to come to within a minute and know who it is i i like getting great food delivered to my house but I also want to make sure that the individuals that work in that way are getting the ability to progress and if they want to and the ability to develop and have holiday pay and and also prepare for, you know, a period when they're going to retire. So I think it is about uh, trying to come up with different solutions for tomorrow's problems rather than just saying what, you know, the positions that people have had for the last decade. Absolutely. Now, I would like to maybe ask you for your experience about one issue that is also a little bit polarized debate which is between large companies corporates and small and medium sized because we know that SMEs are the main employer in Europe and in certain countries even 90 something percent like in Italy Um, but the discourse also seems to be very very different in SMEs and their readiness to be embracing flexibility, technology, and the corporates. And and somehow in this discussion about the war for talent or skill shortages, we usually only hear from the large companies and not so much the small companies. What is your experience? How can how do these two groups react differently? And, and, and where do you see maybe some of this polarization? I mean, I think what's interesting is I think you're right. There's two things about SMEs which is interesting. One is, one is, and 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 I think you know we tend to patronise small businesses, but actually, if you think about the dynamism within our economies, certainly in the UK and I know across much of Europe, it comes from 
agile, responsive, small businesses being set up, finding a niche, finding a opportunity where they can service and provide value to customers, whether that's big businesses or to consumers. And they're very good at finding the people, actually, and they don't do it in such a formal way, but they have a culture where people want to join. I think people quite like working in smaller organisations and knowing everybody that's part of the organisation by their first name. You know, it's a bit more egalitarian, it's a bit more um, collaborative, and, and sometimes it's more creative. And I think individuals like working in that environment. And I think they're quite responsive. I think it's the big organisations that are struggling because I think often it's their cultures and the ways of working and the rules of doing business and the policies and the procedures and the compliance which frustrates talent. Uh, and again, one of the things when you look at young people and you ask them about what they want to do in their career, very high percentage, uh, over 70% uh, in the UK from a recent Accenture study said that they wanted to be entrepreneurs. They want to run their own businesses. They want to be in control of their own destiny. And, and that wouldn't have been the way 15, 20 years ago. So there's a marked, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, skepticism and, 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 and angst around big businesses. You know, even the technology companies, if you think about Google and Facebook and, you know, the thing about data and taxation and big companies not paying their way and paying the right level. So I think, you know, when I look at my son's generation, I think they are, they instinctively feel much more comfortable with a socially aware small business than working for a corporate. So I think that it will be the big businesses that struggle to find talent and retain it and they're going to have to work incredibly hard to change their cultures to think about how they hire people how they develop people so that and perhaps they need to think of themselves as a you know from an organizational design perspective as a as a hub and a spoke with lots of different creativity you know creative units which are much smaller which create this level of dynamism you know so i think there's there's a lot going on in this space, but I do think that, you know, I think you hear a lot from big businesses talking about skill shortages and talent shortages. And, and perhaps some of that is because that skill and talent that is available wants to work in a different way and within different types of organisations. That's very interesting. And so in in your view, what are some of the these, these mission critical steps that organisations now need to take? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of attracting talent, I think we've got to think really sensibly about the hiring process. I think the idea that you judge someone through looking at their CV, where they talk about their qualifications and experience and what they've done before as a as a way of thinking about the people that you're intending to hire. And we've known for 30 or 40 years that interviewing is not a good predictor of future performance. But if you talk to most organisations, how do you hire? You go back to the CV and to the interview. So for me, that's, that's a fundamental starting point. So if you want to attract talent, I think we've got a, there's a number of things I think organisations need to do. One is they need to think about people's potential rather than what they've done. So what can this person contribute? And to do that, I think you've got to create tests where people can show you 
by doing real activity rather than an interview. So you set up an assessment centre, you get people to do real projects which are similar to what they're doing in the workplace. You get multiple people from within the organisation. I'm a great believer in collaborative hiring. One, because it, it tackles unconscious bias. But secondly, because every... You know, if you think about those two tests, if you test someone by giving them an activity which is close or very close to the work activity and you have four or five different people observing them, the chances of getting the hiring decision right and looking at someone in a much more holistic 360 degree way, I think, is improved. So there's something about hiring in the first place. And then secondly, I think it's about what we said before. It's about culture. It's about you know, people not being stifled. How do you create an environment where people can come up with ideas, where uh, creativity is harnessed, where there is ways in which people are being judged on their output and not their input? And a lot of this is about leadership and management. You know, and I think, you know, I think we have a deficit of great leadership, which is about painting a picture of what an organisation should be doing, the value it creates. And then, letting people go or creating an environment where people can give it their best. And from a management perspective, how do we turn people that are running teams within organisations into coaches so that they are fostering collaboration, getting people to work in different ways, getting people to develop and grow, giving feedback, setting goals and targets, but not controlling the work, not telling people what they don't do or what they shouldn't do, not trying to give people rules to live by, but trying to give them a picture of what the organisation is about and what they're trying to do. And I think if you do that, you'll get some of the benefit. You'll attract talent and more importantly, you'll retain it because it will be a great place to work. And it's hard to leave an organisation that treats you as an individual, understands your potential, develops you, grows you, um, creates a great environment to work with others you know that's a hard thing to replicate and i so i think that organizations need to work much harder around the human dynamics within their organization and and think much longer about them and then come up with solutions so my my piece of advice to chief execs or mds which i'm doing more and more of now is you know you've got to spend a third of your time talking to customers and engaging with them about the value your business creates and spend a third of time with your people. Yeah, you've got to spend a third of time looking at the numbers and developing plans, but your people and your customers are the stuff that creates value for your organisation. And I think if you look at where people spend their time, particularly leaders within big organisations, they don't spend anywhere near two-thirds of their time with their people or their customers. Hmm. So, dear listeners, if you thought that Kevin is going to say that you need to buy another ping pong table and uh, order fruit <laughs> balls then <laughs> you are in for a disappointment but it, it's really hard work I mean all of the things that you listed which I of course agree 200% but there is no copy paste solution there is no best practice there is no good practice it's, it's really hard work every organization has to kind of find the courage and the strength inside them to to, to, to organically develop this, right? It's it's not looking here. I mean, you can of course be inspired, but it's not an it's not a or it's not the an HR 
cloud system that you buy and then it will all happen or right no no it's not i mean that and the longer organization's been in existence and the bigger it is the more complex it becomes the more difficult it is to change but i was talking to an hr director uh, uh, here recently last week and we were talking about diversity and inclusion and and, and talking about it as a, a big issue and the organizations are grappling with why have we not got women on boards? Why are we not representative in terms of race? Why have we not got, you know, why are we not inclusive and have lots of people with disabilities working in our organization? So I think everyone recognizes the problem. And what they tend to then do is look for what I would call superficial. You know, we'll have a mentoring program, we'll hire some non-execs that are female so that they can role model will and i think the issue that we got to was you have to look at this quite deeply you know you've got to look at the systemic parts of your organization about why people don't progress you know really understand why do women not uh, want to take long-term career positions within the organization if that's the problem why don't you know is it about hiring is it about the cult so you can't just come up with an easy silver bullet to create this type of culture that I'm talking about. It is about thinking about it quite seriously and looking at how the organisation really behaves in how it hires, how people are promoted, uh, the culture that it's got. And you have to, if you want to change it, uh, change the system, then you need to work at that level. You can't do it by just throwing a little bit of money and you know, creating a few superficial programs. You have to look at the fundamentals um, and uh, really tackle it from a systemic, organic perspective. So I think you're right. Transforming big organisations is, is tough. And I, I certainly experienced that Royal Mail. I mean, it had been around 360 years. So, you know, it had a lot of deep-seated, you know, deep-seated DNA. And you have to pick real meaningful things to demonstrate what good really looks like in the new environment and make it stick uh, and not just do the easy to do stuff, but do the hard stuff. And also it takes time, right? So, you know, and that's the problem that you will not see, you will not see a immediate benefit. So you just have to keep your head down and, and just plow through and, and, you know, it will happen eventually, but it, it's not a quarter to quarter thing. And if you absolutely that last point was the point I was going to make. If you look at the tenure of chief executives, you know, it's like five years in most large corporate businesses and they're judged on their quarter by quarter performance. And even if they're serious about doing stuff on diversity and inclusion, just just picking an issue, then, you know, it's very they haven't got the time to really unpick the ways in which that organisation behaves uh, you know, uh, and, and, and so that's one of the fundamental issues that it does take time and it takes um, it takes great patience and it means you've got to be brave and you have to invest. And those are the sorts of things that in large publicly listed companies, leaders don't have. You know, it's difficult to invest. It's difficult to be able to invest in things that are going to take, you know, six, seven years to make a return, if not 10 or or 12 years so you're absolutely right time investment and the tenure of leaders doesn't help in terms of changing large organizations hence why small organizations you know people that get frustrated you know i've talked to lots of people in the last three or four months since i've gone off and done my own thing 
that, like you said right at the beginning of our interview, that want to go off and do their own thing because they're so frustrated with the organisations in which they work in. Now, because time is running a bit too fast here on the podcast, um, before we go to our last question, may I ask you, Kevin, to share with listeners where they can find out more about your work, where they can keep an eye on your upcoming book or where they can get in touch with you? Yeah, um, I suppose the best place is um, on Twitter. So it's uh, at Kevin Green WNC. My website for my consultancy organisation is What's Next Consulting or consultancy.uk.com. I'm on LinkedIn. So again, you know, most of the, the normal channels, really, website, uh, Twitter uh, and LinkedIn. I, I am on, um, what else am I on? WhatsApp. I'm trying to keep up with social media and stuff. I'm a, I find it a challenge, but I'm continuing to try and embrace this way of engaging with people. I love Twitter. I absolutely adore it and I was a huge skeptic to start with and as you mentioned right at the top of the interview I now tweet consistently uh, throughout the day and um, and I find it a great way of connecting and a great way of learning. Great um, now I know that you have mentioned already some of your advice to senior leaders on the work-life podcast the last question is always the same what would be your advice to to leaders but Perhaps let's turn it a little bit around and, and, and maybe what would be your advice to, to employees um, if they would like to, you know, have a better control of their destiny, of their future? What would you advise to them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two or three things. I mean, I think for, the, for leaders it is, as I already said, you know, think about customers in much more detail. Think about your staff and, and engage with your staff and listen, really listen. Because, again, when I've been doing consultancy work right away throughout my career, the great ideas when you go into organisations is normally they normally come from talking to customers or frontline staff. They'll tell you what the organisation needs to be doing and why people are frustrated with working with them. So that's the thing to leaders. In terms of employees, I would say there's a couple of things. You know, take ownership of your own career. If you really don't like the organisation that you work in, then find yourself another job or create your own job. So think about your career and think about the value you create in a way which is about taking responsibility so that you can really think about what you love doing, what you dislike doing, uh, and then try and find the environment where you can flourish, where you can be at your best. We spend... 50% of our adult working of our adult life at work and i think it's a huge shame that you hear so many people moaning and groaning about the environment that they work in and really not enjoying their job so you know no one else is responsible for your career or where you work other than yourself so take responsibility really think about what you're great at think about what you'd like to do more of and then go out and find whether it's a, uh, a freelance gig, whether it's working in a consultancy organisation or a think tank or uh, an SME or even a big organisation where you can really, where it's got an environment that will suit your style and what you're passionate about. And if you can do that, you'll be much happier. And if you're happier, there's a great tweet today, a study, I can't remember who it was by, but yeah, happy employees are 12% more productive, which is a 
fantastic indication that when people are happy and enjoying themselves, they deliver more output for the businesses that they work in. So there's a win-win in all of this if we if people can just feel a bit braver and, and take a bit more responsibility. Great. Absolutely phenomenal advice there, both for organizations and for people working in organizations. So um, thank you so much, uh, Kevin, for taking the time, for sharing your knowledge, your insight with the listeners. I really appreciated this conversation and I really wish you the best of success for your work and, and the future. Thank you very much and thank you for the opportunity of, uh, of, of saying my piece and, and giving me a platform in, within which to engage your listeners because I think your work is very, very interesting but I think you've also got some important messages to give to businesses. So hopefully we'll be able to continue the dialogue and find some opportunities to work together in the future.